Tony and I would like to remind you that you shouldn't take anything you hear on this show as financial advice for you or your friends or your loved ones. We're just talking, just chatting, talking about ideas. If you're looking for financial advice, go out and find a financial advisor and ask them based on your own circumstances what you should do. You can talk about things you've heard on the show, but don't take this as financial advice. Welcome back to the QAV podcast. If this is your first time listening, my name is Cameron Riley. I'm the uh, official button pusher and producer of the show. Uh, with me on the other end of the line in his Sky Palace in Sydney is uh, the guy who's just been insulting me off air, Tony Kyniston. Hey, Kino. Hello, Cam. I, I didn't think I was insulting you, really. Yes, you did. Yes, no, I you didn't. did. I don't, didn't. Don't put... Don't bullshit a bullshit it, Tony. It's, um, it's Australian uh, sense of humour, you know that. You're sounding yeah, all American well, now. You don't, you don't, <laughs> I'm not. You a, don't get it. I'm not. <laughs> I'm, not I'm, I'm not offended by your jibes. I can take it and smile about it. Uh, if I was an American, I'd be insulted. I'm just. You would be. Yeah, we'd be at thermonuclear war by now if you were American. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Tony, in terms of uh, agenda for today's show, um, you got so inspired by listening to the show that we did with Samo last week. For people who haven't heard that episode, go and listen to episode whatever it was, five, I think, with Steve Sammartino, the Sammartino Method. I think you uh, you plan on sort of reflections, you said, reflections and extensions on last week's show. Is that uh, right? Am I in the right ballpark here? You want to take some of the stuff that Steve and you talked about and, and build on it a little bit? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we had planned to talk about uh, yield curve and yield curve inversions, but I think this is a better topic. No, it was. I listened to uh, the recording of the podcast you sent me as it went up to the website, and I was really impressed. Um, and in fact, I'd almost go as far as to say if uh, if if people haven't heard it, um, probably the first episode of our series and then that one are the two key ones to listen to. Because, um, I mean, first of all, it was uh, objective. So Steve was bringing his experience to the table. So it was not just me uh, going on about my experience, but it also went into the nitty-gritty of his philosophies and how he started and how someone who might be sort of in their late teens can uh, start putting money aside and, and buy their first index fund and um, start a plan which can last their lifetime. And that's just really, really good. I was quite inspired by it. Me too. So, where do you want to start on today's show? Well, I just I just wanted to pick up on some of those points and just uh, provide a bit of a recap because they were so important. Uh, the first one was that Steve had a savings plan from a very early age, and um, that, that's a bit different to how I did it. I, I must admit, I, I was terrible at saving all the way through my my thirties and probably didn't get into you know the this kind of uh, investment discipline until um, oh, maybe I was around thirty. Yeah, but if I mean just listening to the way Steve did it, if I had started that, that ten years earlier, I'd you know I'd be streets ahead of where I am now. So it's kind of a sobering thought, and it's the old story: it's not too late to start, um, and you're better off starting tomorrow than, than waiting until you know you feel ready for it. Just dive in. Um, but Steve's Steve's savings plan was a good one. He he put aside up to thirty percent of his income. Um, and that obviously cost him in terms of he didn't live in a flash house or drive a flash car. 
He didn't go into debt to buy a car or to take holidays or whatever. Um, but he had the savings plan. And as his income increased as he got older and got better jobs and finished university and graduated and, and went off to work for the uh, Procter & Gamble's of the world, he, he still kept putting that money aside. So that was a, a really good plan. I guess the second the second point that goes hand in hand with that is dollar cost averaging. So every month or, or period of time, he would just keep putting that same amount into the market. Didn't matter whether the market was up or down or whether he was investing overseas and the dollar was up or down. He just kept buying whatever that portion of his salary would buy um, and letting the ups and downs ride themselves out over time. And that's a really important point too. Um and, and he, I think he used the example that it, once it, once you start getting into it, it becomes a discipline, just like going to the gym or brushing your teeth or, or you know, whatever you do regularly. Um, and uh, it becomes a game. And, and um, you know, he was always he was always comparing a, a purchase that he might make to how much that would cost him uh, in terms of not being able to put as much money into the market uh, that that month. Um, and that's the kind of investment mindset that people need and, and hopefully will take away from, from that podcast. Very, very good. So one thing strikes me, like I think it's really challenging uh, for anyone to do that, particularly in this day and age where there's so much social pressure, pressure from marketing, from the media to actually be going into debt uh, uh, as soon as you possibly can, get a credit card, use Afterpay and services like this to buy things that you can't afford right now, uh, use lines of credit to do it, uh, to have the latest fashion and the sexiest car and nice uh, furniture and all this kind of stuff, go on a nice holiday, have the latest iPhone, um, latest computer, all this kind of jazz. Um so to fight that, uh, that is going to take a lot of willpower and a lot of lot of intestinal uh, testicular fortitude. Um, so I'm wondering um, how people go about doing that. I'm wondering if we should not create QAV clubs where uh, people can get together, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, listeners to this show and uh, just support each other. <laughs> in uh, they wouldn't be able to. I was going to say they could meet at a bar, but they can't afford to spend money at a bar. <laughs> so we'd have to meet uh, maybe at a um, another lentil kitchen or something meet, like that. Yeah, meet, meet at Samo's house. <laughs> your house. Sam- well, meet at your meet house. At Samo's mum's. <laughs> meet at Samo's mum's house. <laughs> But seriously, like it's, I think people do probably need a, a bit of a support group uh, if you're going to do this because there's so much external pressure telling you not to do that, to do the complete opposite, spend not just spend everything you've got, but spend more than you've got. Yeah, look, that's that's it's a good idea. Um, I think also too, once you get on the sort of once you start doing it, when you get on the treadmill of saving, it becomes self-reinforcing. Like Steve said, it becomes a game. Um, you know, how much can I put into the market this month? And look, look what it, look how much it's grown this year and that kind of stuff. So that does become self-reinforcing and does, you know, help tune out all the, the market pressures in your life. And, but yeah, you've, you've got to, you've got to really develop that mentality of, of independent thinking and, and thinking for the long term. 
I mean, for example, when I was at when I was uh, working at Shell, um, the big multinational oil company, uh, when I first got out of university, you know, as, as our jobs got better, all the all my mates were, um, you know, were driving the latest sports car, and I was still driving a four thousand dollars seventy seven Falcon that you know I'd picked up at a used car lot, um, and didn't worry me. But you've got to have that kind of mentality. I knew that the money was going. For better use, and 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 Steve said that as much as himself. He said he, he wouldn't borrow unless it was for an appreciating asset. So I don't think he was anti debt so much as it's just making sure you don't borrow for holidays and don't borrow for um, things that you're going to depreciate, like cars and motorbikes and things like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's no, good. Good point, though. Clubs are clubs are self reinforcing too. But yeah, tuning out is so important. It's not just tuning out. The pressures that make you want to spend it's tuning out the pressures that make you want to chop and change in the market too there's just so much market noise about you know this looming disaster or this boom that's happening um and i think steve was also very good at saying i'm not trying to beat the market i'm just going to keep putting my money in the index fund uh the same account every month or whatever it was every quarter or every year, and it's just going to grow with the market. I don't care if there's a recession coming around the corner. I don't care if there's a, a boom going on that I'm not part of. Um, tuning out the market noise is really important as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah. So that's. I mean, they were all such such really good points. Um, I guess one last thing, just going back to what I said before, I was such a crap saver. Um, I mean, I did things like drove a, a secondhand car and. Uh, you know, bought a house and, and rented out the rooms to my mates and things like that. Um, and they're important. But for me, the, the discipline came when I first bought a house. And then you're on the hook for the mortgage and it's a fixed amount every month. And if you don't make it, then, um, you know, you fall into a reason eventually the bank could take it back off you. So that was the, that was the way I forced myself to have discipline. I went out and bought a house. I did have, you know, a bit of money saved up for a deposit. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was my four savings. And then when the house sort of appreciated in value and I paid down the mortgage a bit, I reborrowed and put that money into the share market. So that's, that's how I started. But that's an important point for people who find it difficult to save is put yourself on the hook for something. Um, even the rent, uh, can, can give you a discipline of, of putting money aside. But ideally, that, I mean, that rent's going to fund somebody else's retirement. You need to put that money into a mortgage and, and, and pay off, um, you, you know, the mortgage and, and, and have that your own asset, uh, have, have that contribution going to your own asset rather than, um, somebody else's rent. But that's, that's the way I started, uh, doing a forced saving. And that's what worked for me. Very difficult for young people listening to this to figure out how to get up the, deposit to buy a real estate in Australia today though yeah no it is very very much so but but I think that's why Steve was so enlightening as soon as he had that job at the service station he took 30 percent and put it into the index fund I think he said he saved five thousand and started off with five thousand yeah um, now that that might seem like a, a, a large amount to a lot of people as well young people who were you know probably holding down 15 buck an hour jobs flipping burgers at McDonald's but again it just adds up Take take time. It might take a couple of years to get to five thousand, but then the five thousand you know grows. Um, yeah, yeah, both through savings and through compounding, and then you get to a stage where you have a deposit. Yeah. And again, like I'm not saying go out and buy a 
buy a, a expensive real estate, go out and find, as Steve said last week, go out and find an area in the city you live in which you think might appreciate in value. So, you know, it's maybe it's a, a little run down at the moment. Maybe it's a, in transition. Um, maybe it's not the nicest area in the city, but it's the, it's the, you know, one you, you find it, it's the, it's the cheapest one you can live with. Um, and that's probably going to be the one that people start to, to gravitate to anyway, for the same reasons that you do. Uh, so you don't have to have an expensive place to start off with, but just get into the market. I always talk about, uh, investing a bit like playing cards. Um, you can't pick the winning hand. So you can't sort of sit out five hands in a row and then suddenly get dealt in because you think it's going to be a winning hand. You've got to be at the table the whole time and you will get dealt winning hands from time to time. And the rest of the time will be quiet, but you've got to be at the table. Okay. <laughs> you don't like that? Well, no, I, I just think, you know, I'm not sure if you're playing at Crown Casino, you're ever going to get a winning hand. I think the casino is <laughs> designed to make sure you don't get a winning hand. Um, but, uh, like, still, still very difficult, I think, for uh, young people to get a buy any piece of real estate today unless they're getting help from mum and dad. Real estate, even even cheap real estate, at least here in Brisbane, it's very difficult, I think, to find a cheap house. You, you have to go out of Brisbane, really, to find anything. But that's that's a possibility as well, I guess. Yeah, well, that's right. I think there's always two strategies with starting with your first home. One is find somewhere reasonably close to the city. And for for me, it was Yarraville. And it sounds like it was for Steve as well back in the 80s. Um, it'll be different in Brisbane. I mean, when I was at university, Spring Hill was going through this kind of you know gentrification process. So it was still pretty grungy and lots of students living there and rental accommodation and shared houses and stuff like that. I'm guessing this, I don't know Brisbane that well, but there'll be pockets in Brisbane that look like that. Um, and maybe the, like the first house I bought, I did it with a mate. You don't just go, I couldn't go out and do it by myself. So we paired up. Um, and that lasted for a long time. Um, so, you know, look for people to pair up with. Uh, you know, you might have to go and buy a one bedroom house, first of all, and rent it out. You know, so the rent starts to cover the, the mortgage, but eventually it just mounts up. Yeah, pairing yeah. up with other people. That's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about parents helping out. That's really what you're doing is going and finding some like-minded friends to help out. Right. Um, okay, so getting back to the, the idea of index funds and Steve's approach, which I think was a very, very good one, and I think will be appropriate for the vast majority of people who are investing. Um, you don't have time. You don't have the inclination. You don't have uh, the, the brain for maths or investing, so you just go out and buy the index fund. That's where a lot of people will stop and should stop on their um, their road to, uh, well, asset accumulation, I guess, and, and abundance, as Steve calls it. Um, but I see investing as being a bit of a ladder. So that's the first rung on the ladder, and it's the broadest rung, and it's the easiest one to get onto. But then there are other rungs. And what I want to try and do is to, to draw the line between Steve's method and what we've been talking about. Um, in the QAV podcast, which was my methods of trying to find undervalued quality stocks. And I think you get there by, by taking steps up the ladder. So the next step up the ladder, I would say, is to look at the ASX uh, as a market and look at what makes up the index. And what you find is, just like uh, in any sort of clustering or grouping, the 80-20 rule applies. Um, you've heard of the Pareto, the Pareto principle, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so Nikolai Pareto, uh, from memory, he took all the heights of people in uh, wherever he was in Italy, Palermo or somewhere. 
Oh, just a little minute there. You know, leave the history to me, Tony. Uh, honestly, you can you can talk about the money stuff, but when it comes to history, I'm your man. Uh, Nikolai? No, not Nikolai. Vilfredo. Vilfredo Federico Damaso Pareto. He was an Italian engineer, economist, political scientist, philosopher. He was actually in Switzerland, though, when um, he was uh, did his work that became known as the Pareto Principle. And he was actually born in Paris from a Genoese family, but born in Paris, worked in Switzerland. And actually had nothing to do with heights. What he was doing, he was actually the chair of political economy at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. And in 1906, he made a famous now observation that 20% of the population owned 80% of the property in Italy. Uh, and this is what became known as the 80-20 rule. Now, some interesting things about uh, Pareto. He, um, when he was lecturing uh, around about 1904, uh, a young socialist by the name of Benito Mussolini was a student and attended some of Pareto's lectures <laughs> at the university. And um, it has been argued by some historians that uh, Pareto actually uh, played a big part in moving Mussolini away from socialism towards fascism. And in fact, uh, Pareto ended up being a supporter of Mussolini's and fascism later on. Um, he was uh, very skeptical of socialism, a big critic of socialism, and he thought uh, the fascists were going to do a great job in uh, getting rid of the state and uh, enabling market forces to take control. But the point is, 80-20 rule, Pareto, uh, and it was he, he came up with it while looking at wealth distribution in society, not heights. Back to Tony. And that kind of applies whenever you're looking at a, a broad grouping of, um, of companies or, you know, heights or whatever. And um, it's the same for the ASX. And, and the top 20 stocks on the ASX from memory are about 72% of the market in terms of market capitalization, which means that they're going to account for most of the index that Steve's trying to buy. So he's doing it by putting money into a, a, a fund, which you know goes out and mimics the whole of the 2,000 stocks on the ASX. What I'm suggesting is that if you wanted to even save the fees of that fund, I think Steve said he was paying about 1.5%, you can do it yourself by, by taking uh, the top 20 stocks and just go and buy them directly yourself. And then um, just watch them perhaps once a year if you if you uh, don't have much time, and just check to see that uh, you know one hasn't uh, rolled out of that top twenty and something else has replaced it. And if it has, just rebalance. So so sell the one that's rolled out and buy the one that's rolled in. That is going to give you um, pretty a pretty close approximation to the kind of average return that holding an index fund will. And you can do it yourself for a lower fee than 1.5%. So that's kind of the second step on the ladder is can I lower the fees? And the fees matter, as we talked about last week. Um, you're still going to have brokerage commissions because you're buying the, the stocks yourself. Although these days online, you can do it for as low as $20 or $30 a transaction. Um, so saving that 1.5% or even 1% is going to make a big difference over time. So that's kind of the next step on the ladder. The next step after that is you probably notice that of those 20 stocks, 
like all things, there's going to be a heavy lifter in there. Heavy lifter in there. So one of one or two of at the most three of those stocks are going to get most of the uh, performance um, increase of the index. You're going to find there's some stocks which lag the index and a lot of stocks which get the average. And so the next question is, can we find those one or two outperformers of those top 20 stocks um, which would allow us to beat the index? And the way that um, that I've done that uh, over the past uh, many years is to look at uh, look at the valuation that we think the company will achieve in 12 months time and we went through that on our qav checklist checklist in some of the previous podcasts and i'm going to assume that the the top 20 stocks are all pretty financially healthy um, and of sound quality you can run the full qav checklist against them um, but you'll probably find they all score pretty well on the quality side of things because by definition they're the blue chip stocks in the market so, you know, they're big, they're robust. Um, yeah, sure, they might be um, getting headwinds in the economy through disruption or this and that, but they're still large, big companies that are going to be largely financially robust. So then the question is, which ones, which ones are growing the fastest and which ones have the best growth prospects? And if you recall at the end of our checklist, we looked at um, what we call the, the future intrinsic value of the stock. And we did that by taking the... Uh, forecast um, earnings per share and dividing it by 7.5%, which was our hurdle rate. And we came up with a future value for, this, for the stock. And um, oftentimes, um, perhaps not every year, but most years, you'll find that there are, there are definitely some stocks which are below their intrinsic value that's forecast. And uh, one strategy that I've used is to find the one that has the uh, the biggest gap between its current price and its future intrinsic value forecast and buying that one stock. And, and that gives me outperformance, not every year, but generally over the, over the cycles. So that's kind of step three on the ladder is we're trying to find the, the stock out of that top 20 that we're holding as an index that is probably going to perform the best over the next 12 months. And we do have to sacrifice some of the some of the value principles for, for doing that because uh, sometimes the fast-growing stock is on a high, uh, what's called a P multiple, so it's on a high price-to-earnings ratio. So it can look like it's overvalued. Um, but if we look at the current price compared to its future intrinsic value and there's a, a gap there, then uh, I'd still I'd still buy it and put it in the portfolio for 12 months. So has that all made sense so far, Cam? Yeah, so if I understand correctly, what you're saying is if you don't want to, if you don't have the funds maybe to go and buy uh, your way into one of these managed index funds, you can look at buying either the top 20 companies on the ASX or if you're in the US, I assume, on the New York Stock Exchange. Yes. Or wherever you are in the world, whatever your exchange is. Mm-hmm. Um but then, on top of that, you could just use this one metric to try and figure out which of, if you if you wanted to buy a smaller portfolio of stocks, use this one metric to try and determine which of those are likely to outperform the others. Yeah, that's right. So again, not giving any individual financial advice, but that's something that I've used in the past uh, to um, good effect. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And still do. I still use it. I, 
I run that sort of um, strategy against the QAV overall strategy as well, and it's done well. And and why why would you do that, Tony? At your stage, why wouldn't you be trying to get the best possible stocks? Why just take that sort of quick and dirty method? Where's the what's the benefit? Because it's been so lucrative over the years. Um, oh, I, I from time to time I run what I call champion and challenger strategies. Um, this is something I learned from working with GE. Um, I used to put out credit cards when I was at Colesmeyer and at Shell with GE as the partner. And I was chatting with the GE people one day and they were talking about this. Uh, they, they had this methodology in their company where they might run one particular strategy across their consumer base for a credit lending, for example. They do it for all different sorts of things, but they have a, a credit card base of customers and they'll have the one particular strategy which has made the money over the years. That, that might be a strategy of offering people credit limit increases or it might be a strategy of you know, um, collecting arrears faster or whatever. Um, but there's always new ideas coming up. And so what they did is they would take a portion of their portfolio and they call that the challenger strategy and they run their second strategy across that portfolio. And then they compare it to the main portfolio and see, you know, which one worked. And if the challenger did something better than the, the, the main portfolio, then they would um, swap it. Um, if it was a good result, but not as good as the main portfolio. They still might keep it to a small section of the portfolio and then run another strategy against that. So it's always this kind of head-to-head combat going on. And that's, this is one of the, the challenger strategies that I ran um, over the years. And in some years it beats the QAV strategy, in some years it doesn't, but it's still pretty good. So I, it's so easy to do. It, it just seems a no-brainer for me that when I'm doing all the QAV work, I just do this one extra piece of work and then buy that share. Well, it's actually already one of the things on the checklist. It's less work for that, isn't it? It's just yeah, looking yeah. at one one metric rather than looking at the 17 that we've done on our earlier episodes. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So this uh, challenger strategy thing sounds like A-B testing to me, what we would call in marketing A-B testing. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, that's right. So you're taking a test cell and you, you, you know, you're testing it against the main strategy. Yep. Yeah, just just playing with all of the variables and testing all of the variables on an ongoing basis just to see if you can uh, improve the baseline at all. Mm, no, exactly. Okay, so that's the, we, we we should have started with that in our first episode. Just take this one one metric, uh, and you're saying that that performs uh, pretty well. Yeah, look, I, I'm sorry I don't have separate figures for it. Um, I know the performance this year has been like uh, really good. It's been like 30% so far um, for that particular stock, which is not to say it won't turn down between now and the end of the financial year or be replaced at the end of the financial year. But yeah, it works well. So one stock out of the top 20 where mm-hmm. that uh, in future intrinsic value was the strongest out of the top 20. Is that what you're saying? It's performed quite well. That's right. Correct. Fascinating. And it, it, the idea actually came to me, I think from memory I was reading a Stephen Hawking's, not, uh, Richard Dawkins book, sorry. Um, and he was saying that this kind of strategy gets played out in evolutionary cycles all the time where mm. he was explaining, you know, evolution isn't just a sudden light bulb that goes on and everything changes. There's, you know, out of all the, I don't know, you know, insects in a particular colony, there's this one sort of strategy which kind of outperforms and then eventually it becomes the dominant strategy, but it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a whole series of things to do it. And uh, and evolutionary biologists look for that kind of dominant strategy um, as being the heavy lifter, the one that's going to change the 
performance of the um, or the evolution of that colony over time. And I thought, hey, it's just like stock investing. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how evolution works, right? There'll be this uh, one uh, aspect of the gene that'll get mutated and it may or may not de- help that uh, animal or plant develop uh, attributes which will give it a competitive advantage. And if if it does, that attribute will possibly continue into successive generations. And if it doesn't, that particular animal will die out and will never know it exists. Yeah, so that's how I came across it. And that's actually, that reminds me, one of the things that I meant to say at the start about summing up from last week, you know, the, one of the common things that... Um, I found between what Steve said and, and my experience is, is books. Get out there and read books on investing and, and improving your financial wealth. And, uh, you know, you might find a different set of books that, that appeal to you compared to the ones that appeal to Steve and appeal to me. But, uh, this stuff isn't being taught in schools. You need to educate yourself. So, yeah. And like I said, it may not just be on investing. I picked up this idea from reading, you know, Richard Dawkins on evolutionary biology. So, that's one of the things Charlie Munger always says um, about investing is, is is read widely and try and form a latticework of ideas that keep coming back to investing or to help you to think about investing. Yeah. Yeah. And just like Steve was saying, you know, his father's talking about farming helped him on, um, to, to come to investing. And a few other books he was talking about weren't necessarily about investing. I think one was about strategy and that's helped him. So... Yeah, I mean, just just try and, and find, just read widely, and when you find something, just think, oh yeah, how does that apply to investing? It probably does. Well, yeah, I I found the same with studying history over the years. Is uh, you you see patterns emerging the more you read. You go, oh okay, I remember seeing that happening. Something that you see happening in the third uh, century BCE, you see happening again in fifteen hundred, and you see it happening again today. And you go, okay, there are basically patterns of human behavior that just play out over and over again yeah and the more you can understand human behavior the more it's going to help you in the share market um i mean steve steve has one approach to it which is basically invest in the index and then just turn off any sort of noise that comes um you know i'm a bit more of an active investor and so that you've got to deal with your emotions and deal with the emotions of the market and as warren buffett said mr market is a manic depressive who comes to you every day and offers you a price for your share Sometimes it's wildly high and sometimes it's wildly low and there'll be all these reasons why he's acting that way. So, if you, again, tune out those, those kind of emotions and noise and work out whether you think that you're a seller at that price or a buyer at that price or happy just to go along your merry way and ignore him at that price. Does Buffett, does Buffett ever explain why the market's not more rational? Why is it manic depressive? You've got all these really, really, really smart people with uh, multiple degrees, uh, massive IQs that are running the markets, one would assume from watching movies like Wall Street. Um, why is it manic depressive? Why isn't it more rational and consistent? Um, I don't know if he's ever come out and said exactly. I'll, I'll give you some of the things he said. He said that, um, well, obviously Ben Graham said, in the short term, the market's a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine. And what he meant by that was there's so much human psychology in share, share market investing that in the short term, people are voting with their feet. And that's why I think you get uh, some of these internet stocks being bought so strongly. People are voting that that's going to be the wave of the future. But in the long term, the market's a weighing machine. So eventually, 
um, everything's going to have to stand up to some kind of measure of intrinsic value. What, what's it worth to a rational investor, regardless of all the hype and booms that's going on? Buffett also says that, you know, he's been teaching value investing for 30 or 40 years and it still hasn't caught on. So he kind of scratches his head and said, can't believe that uh, people aren't more rational in the markets as well. And I think also, too, that's one of the things that um, where I differ differ from Steve, and we're probably coming from the same starting positions, but Steve, I think, mentioned in last week that uh, he finds it very hard to find anybody who can outperform the market longer term. And that's always been the, the sort of accusation thrown at Buffett over the years is that um, the market is uh, is always hard to beat. And Steve's right in that if you, if you look at uh, investment funds, it's very hard for them to beat the market longer term. And I think some of the reasons for that is um, as they get bigger, it's, you're playing in a bigger and bigger section of the market, which is more liquid and more researched. And so it's harder to find an edge. And also those bigger companies have to really, you know, move the needle to get the kind of growth a small company can get for some, um, in their early days of, um, of starting out. So that's, there's the, there's the drag of size on investment funds. And even Buffett himself, every year in his annual report says, you know, we're, we're so big now, I just can't see myself getting the returns I've gotten in the past. Every year he often does, but he's always saying that. So there's that. There's also, um, key person risk. So if an investment fund gets really big and does really well, uh, and it, it goes on for 30 or 40 years, probably the person who's been their key stock picker is going to retire, you know, either just to go and put their feet up in this, a sandy beach somewhere or just, you know, get too old to do it. And so you're facing the risk of replacing that key person with somebody who's as good. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. So in, uh, so funds can actively manage funds can face that those two difficulties over the long term. And it'll be a question that investors have to face in Berkshire Hathaway when Warren or Charlie or both uh, pass on. They're both very old at the moment and they're both trying very hard to set up uh, for a good succession. But, you know, it might be difficult. Mm. But but individuals, I think, don't face those kind of hampers, although they, they probably do. But because you're doing it for yourself, you can decide when you've had enough and want to retire and all that. You're not still taking funds in from people and, and promising to, to beat the market. But I'm wondering why why people going to university, learning how to be uh, stockbrokers or fund managers or whatever you learn, uh, you know, they're not, go- <laughs> they're not doing three years of, well, this is how Buffett does it. Okay, you got that? Right, good. Off you go. Go do that. And we're, we're you know, churning out thousands of those people every year that just go out and do what these guys do. Well, I think I think university started off that way back in the twenties and thirties when investing was taught first started to be taught at universities, and that's how Buffett started. He he sought out Ben Graham, who was uh, teaching a course at Columbia on on value investing, and absorbed everything he could, and then went and worked for Ben Graham in his partnership outside of the university on Wall Street, um, and then went back to Omaha and set up his own fund. But um, you know, well, for example, Harvard Business School invites Buffett in to do a lecture once a year, and he does that. That's one lecture out of the whole three years of business school. So they're not teaching Buffett's methodology. They're, they're putting him forward as one example of many, many different things you need to learn about investing. And on top of that, I mean, Buffett's had this almost open hostility to business schools, particularly back in the 70s and 80s when 
this idea of the efficient market theory became fashionable. And the efficient market theory says that uh, all the information that can be had about a share is out there in the market already, and that's traded into the price. And so you're not going to be able to beat the market unless you're an insider or, or have information the market doesn't. Um, and Buffett said, Buffett's always said that's bullshit. Just call bullshit on it continuously. Every time one of these guys will get a Nobel Prize for economics like Eugene Fama, he just scratch his head and say, well, that's one way of looking at it. It's not the way I look at it. I'm trying to seek out, you know, quality companies I can buy cheaply. That's not what Fama's saying. He's saying you can't do that. And Buffett wrote a, an article, um, called the super investors of Graham and Doddsville. And, and he's obviously referring to Ben Graham there and another value investor in the thirties called the Dodd. In fact, I think Dodd was Graham's partner. Anyway, he said that, look, he could name 20 people who were investing the way that he was investing and getting the same returns, if not better. And they're all just following Ben Graham's teachings from the thirties. And if you try and try and wrap up all this newfangled efficient market theory and, and put all this maths behind it and get a Nobel Prize for economics, you're missing the point. But there is plenty of, um, plenty of undervalued stocks out there to buy. You just got to find them. Right. I still don't understand, though, why if uh, it's worked for guys like Buffett for so long and you've been able to take what he does and, and apply it for decades, why, why everyone's not doing it. Yeah, I, I don't know. Why they're not just... I mean, okay, he may go and give one speech, but why is that just the basic core curriculum? This is how you invest in everyone. (laughs) Just do it. Shut up. Go do it. Thank you very much. I know. And you could also argue that if you're attracted to this kind of stuff, don't go to university. Just start doing it. Read the book and do it. Get your feet wet. Yeah, but you, you you don't know that until you go to university and somebody tells you that's what you're supposed to do, right? <laughs> unless yeah. you unless you do, but um, yeah. Look, I find it really strange, and I find the, the consequences of that just um, unbelievably puzzling and wrong. And one of the consequences we're finding at the moment, as you and I are finding, is it's um, it's difficult to get a financial services license in Australia because the government is trying to get us to go to university and do a course on financial advice, which is going to teach us all the stuff that we're saying not to do necessarily, like um, efficient market theory and things like that. Although, to be fair, efficient market theory is kind of what Steve Sammartino is saying, by the index, um, although the efficient market theory is not necessarily saying that. But there's a whole heap of stuff they're going to tell people to do, like diversify their portfolios, um, like get exposure to different asset classes, like uh, invest in different markets so geographically, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So basically, piling indexing on indexing on indexing, which is just at the best a burden on your portfolio in, in terms of paying fees to all these people. Because everyone who sells you an index fund wants their fee, whether it's an index fund that specialises in gold stocks or an index fund that specialises in commercial property or currency trading or emerging markets or Russia. All these people are going to tell you that you need to have a piece of this. Otherwise, uh, you know, you might miss out on that part of the index that's, that's, uh, improved this year, you know, and so they're saying you should, you know, the ultimate index would be to hold every stock in the world, right? Or, or to be a part of every industry. And now people are saying you need to be exposed to infrastructure, which is outside the, the share market, unlisted infrastructure, or you need to be exposed to private equity firms because they're doing so well. Um, 
And look, I'm not saying you shouldn't be, but you know, Steve and I have both said you don't need to be that complex. You need to just save money, put it in an index fund if you have the time, do some investment analysis like I've been talking about that I've done, or do some you know simple simpler analysis like we spoke about earlier in this podcast. But otherwise, forget about all this going off and investing in emerging markets or going off and investing in PE funds and all this kind of stuff. It's just so much noise and it comes with so much fees. But that's what they're teaching a university, Cam. That's why they're almost trying to create a complexity so they can charge a fee for it. So they can send graduates out into the world who can debate whether the this method of discounted cash flow is better than that method of discounted cash flow. It's all just bullshit. It's overcomplicated, fee-seeking rubbish. Well, are you suggesting, Tony, that the education system is set up just to extract money from people and justify its own existence? I find that uh, very hard to believe, Tony. You're such a cynic. Do you reckon there might be some psychopaths running education institutions around the country? Oh, there's a plug for our book, The Psychopath Economy. Get it? Well, you can't get it yet. Just email me and we'll put you on the waiting list for when we finally figure out where we're going to publish it. Um, Okay, well... uh, think we're running out of time man that's 40 minutes how long do you want to keep going for just one last rung on the investment ladder so going back to the investment ladder we've started off with index funds we've started off with buying the top 20 stocks so you're creating your own index index fund and saving the fees and then we're saying if you want to try and get some outperformance buy the most undervalued of those top 20 stocks the next step is is to go to full-blown qav it's can i find shares across the whole market not necessarily in the top 20 that can outperform and that's using the QAV checklist. So that's all I want to say that I wanted to go from Steve's simple method, which I think is fantastic. I think it'll be applicable to most people um, up the investment ladder in terms of complexity and in terms of taking on more risk to get to full-blown QAV. So I wanted to link what Steve was saying to what we've been saying. Yeah, terrific. Yeah. I love yeah. it. So cool. if, if you have if you listen to this and you have an interest, but no time, you start at step one. No, no no, time or ability to go and actually do some work, do some research, do the numbers. Start at step one. As you want to get a little bit more sophisticated and increase your returns, you go to step two, step three. Yeah, exactly. And they take a little bit of effort. You don't have to go and do a three-year degree, but they're going to take a, you know, from a couple of hours to a few hours a week. To yeah. do, commit to being able to pull up some, pull up some reports or get a service like Stock Doctor that you've mentioned in earlier earlier episodes, and uh, use our checklist to have a look at those key QAV metrics. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's fantastic, man. Like I'm, I I just wish I had a TARDIS and I could go back to being eighteen and have my life all over again. Uh, that's what we should be focusing on. That's the, <laughs> that's the next project is building me a TARDIS. Yeah, we just need to find Superman to go around the world a few times and spin it backwards for us. Yeah, then I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure that stacks up uh, in terms of laws of <laughs> physics. Pretty sure that works. Yeah, it did in the '70s when the movie came out. But yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd like to go back and start when Steve started instead of um, you know pissing it up against the wall for the first ten years. Oh, yeah, you're doing it so tough, kind of. <laughs> you're doing it so tough. I feel so sorry for you. Everyone get out your violins now and play a sad song for Kino. Oh, you're just lucky I'm not American and would take offence at that. 
All right. Well, I think that's enough for today, mate. Uh, great. Good stuff. I'm glad that you did sort of revisit and uh, uh, just talk about how simple the whole process is. I'm I'm excited for people listening to this. Sad for myself that I didn't know this when I was young enough to do something about it. But, of course, people could be listening to this. You know, it doesn't matter what age you are. If you have some resources, you can apply this and, and get the benefits from it. Absolutely. And you should be starting too. I mean, you've... <laughs> you still got years, decades in front of you. Do I? Do I, yeah, Kino? I hope so. Uh, well, you, yeah. were the guy, you were the guy who did the singularity or the podcast that included the singularity and interviews with yeah. Aubrey the Grey and how to live long enough and live forever and all that. I said to my wife just the other day, you know, because we got some friends that are in there late 80s, early 90s, and they, they brought us around to uh, help them, you know, figure out their coffin uh, situation. And, and also one of them wants me to get him on video uh, to be played at his funeral. He wants to have the last word. So he said, can you come around and, and, and you know, get me sort of on tape for my funeral video? Anyway, I said to Chrissy, we, we were talking about burial in coffins versus cremation, and I said, you know what I want when I die, right? And she goes, yes, you want to be frozen. You want to be kept in suspended animation. And I said, that's right. She said, but why? I said, because the world, the future world needs me. Who is going to do podcasts if I'm not around? She goes, oh, I bet a million other people. <laughs> Thank you. Including your boys. Thanks very much. Yeah, that's right. Maybe you the world could be put doesn't into, need me You could put all. into the cryo tank next to Michael Jackson. <laughs> He's just his nose, I think, went into the cryo tank. Not the, not the rest of him. You might, you might yeah, find nice. a, you might find an early defrost, a bit of warmth in the cryo tank next to Michael Jackson. <laughs> I have no idea what that's even suggesting, Tony. It's too. Too weird. All right. All I right. think before you before you get any weirder, we should probably uh, <laughs> wrap this one up. All right, mate. That's great. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, mate. See ya. And before we go, let me just remind you one more time, this is not providing you with financial advice. We're talking about how to, how to think about investing, really. We're talking about a method, a process of uh, analyzing stocks, thinking about the ideas behind investing. It's not to be taken as financial advice. If you are looking for financial advice, go see a proper financial advisor. <clears throat> uh, and if you want to hear more episodes of the podcast, if you haven't already, Go up to our website, qavpodcast.com.au or look for QAV on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, subscribe there. You can also subscribe to our mailing list. We'll start a newsletter at some stage in the near future. You can find details for that up on the website. Um, and you can email us if you have questions or if you want to suggest uh, things to talk about or guests for future episodes, let us know. That's it. My name's Cameron Riley. Thanks for listening. Be nice to each other. We'll be back next week. Thank you.